have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Ezra chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2 is one of those chapters that strikes fear into you when you are working through a Bible reading schedule. And I'm not going to lie to you, after you read the first verse of Ezra chapter 2, the reading becomes difficult. And if I were to take the time to read through the chapter, I would stumble and fumble and mispronounce a whole lot of names. But it is an important passage of Scripture for us to understand the whole of the story of renewal that Ezra is trying to teach to us. Last week we began by looking in Ezra chapter 1 at doing the difficult thing. A minority, 50,000 people left exile in Babylon under the rule of Cyrus to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And Ezra chapter 2 is a lengthy list of names in effect. These are the ones that were compelled to go. These were the doers of the difficult thing. I think it is important to note that as Nehemiah in the next book of the Bible will tell us the story about the building of the walls at Jerusalem, this same listing of names with maybe just a slight variation is also in Nehemiah 7. It's important. God has put it in there twice so that we would take note of the doers of the difficult thing. Make no mistake about it, it fits within the scriptural story as a genealogical section. It is intentionally so. This would have been historically proven and used so that we and they would know that these were the descendants of the Jews who had occupied this place in Israel before they went to exile. Now, it may be hard to believe that this is relevant for us, but it in fact is. The scripture makes it known to us in the New Testament that we have to invest in passages like this. When Paul was writing to the believers at Corinth, he said this in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, talking about the historical books and the accounting of Israel, these things were our examples. We have to look at the nation of Israel and use them as an example for how we should or should not live our lives. Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, said all scripture, yes, even passages like Nehemiah chapter 2 are given by inspiration of God. They're profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. This phrase is important, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That verse communicates to us, if you're ever going to have your wagon loaded with all the necessary provisions to make it to the finish line, you need all scripture. So we need this scripture and the lessons derived from it to properly load our wagon to make it where God wants us to go. And I'm with you. You think, I've already set the tone for a boring sermon. You say, man, you've already told us, don't read Nehemiah 2. It's hard. You've then taken us to say, now by the way, in the New Testament, we're told this is our example. And all scripture is given by inspiration, even this scripture. Even this. But I want you to know that this actually is a passage of scripture where a sense of excitement and a brand new opportunity actually dominates the whole scene. 
What lessons can we derive from Ezra chapter 2 that is relevant for you and I as we leave this place and go into the world in February of 2024? Like all of Scripture, Ezra chapter 2 helps us to learn lessons about God. Note with me in verse 1. Now these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away unto Babylon, and came again unto Jerusalem and Judah, every one unto his own city. In the first verse, we're told why this is here. This is a genealogical section of scripture. Here is a list of the names of the people that left captivity and went to do the difficult thing. But I want you to notice a phrase. Let's start with the basics. What do we learn about God? The key phrase is in verse 1 at the end. They came again unto Jerusalem and Judah, everyone unto his own city. The basics is this. God keeps his word. God is a keeper of his promises, and that does not change. In fact, in verse 70, and yes, there are 70 verses in this chapter, and we're going to work through the whole thing this morning. He summarizes by saying this, so the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims dwelt in their cities, all Israel in their cities. What can we see about God in that summation? Israel, which was judged by God for their sin. Israel, which was judged by God for their perversion of true worship of him. For diving into worship of pagan and false gods was sent away into exile into bondage underneath of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Under Cyrus of Persia, they are on their way back. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, who was trying to encourage the nation of Israel in bondage, had written this in Jeremiah 29.10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you. And perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. Jeremiah prophesied that after 70 years of exile, this moment will arrive. And you will return to this place. That's why it's important for us in Ezra chapter 2 and verse 1 and in verse 70 to see that they have arrived to their cities. They have returned. It communicates that God is a keeper of his word and his promises. This was written for your encouragement, for my instruction. God has a plan for us. They were not forgotten in exile. All along the way, God was working his plan during the darkness and the fear and the doubting and the wondering. God had not abandoned them, nor does he us. Do you ever feel like God has forgotten that you exist? 
Do you ever wonder if hardship will ever actually come to an end? If cloudy seasons or seasons of doubt and wonder will ever clear up? Grasp what was written in Hebrews 13, 5, this promise, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He's a keeper of his promises. He's a keeper of his word. His promises for that which is yet to come will be fulfilled. Live in the light of the fact that God keeps his promises. Here's something else I learned from Ezra chapter 2 about God. God sees everyone and he sees everything. Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 45.3. That thou mayest know that I, the Lord, get this, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. Every time you encounter a list of names in Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, one of the basic tenets for its placement there is to remind us that God sees everyone and God sees everything. All the power of Persia, all the power of Babylon, all the years and the passage of time, God had not forgotten. None of that had erased his memory. We grasp as we go down through this list of names, and I'd encourage you to punish yourself by reading through every one of them until you pronounce them all right. But as we read them, what we grasp is this. God knew every one of the Jewish captives by name. He knew everyone that had undertaken this treacherous journey to do the difficult thing. He knew how many sons they had. He knew their backstory. He knew where they lived. He sees everyone and everything. Now, as you read through, no doubt about it, these names for us are only names, but they weren't that to God. To us, they're indistinct characters within the scripture, but they were not that to God. In fact, one wrote this, how little did any of these devoted Jews of Ezra's day think that God would preserve a registry of their names and families for future generations to read and thus to learn how highly he values all that is done from a devotion of heart to himself and for the glory of his name. God sees everyone and he sees everything. Every one of you that are in here, God knows your name. He knows your backstory. He knows your present moment. He knows what's yet to come. He knows us intimately. God knows our names. I think it is worth noting within Scripture, you and I will not be overlooked. As the Bible is coming to a conclusion in Revelation chapter 20, we read this in verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, John is writing in this vision. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Verse 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You're aware that when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, your name is written in the book of life, and God, who sees everyone and everything and knows your name, knows whether or not your name is written in that book of life. 
and is keeping accounting of the works done in the flesh, which will be judged, as we just read in Revelation 20 and verse 12. He sees everyone, and he sees everything. He calls his sheep by name, Jesus says, and his sheep know his voice. God sees you. Think about that for just a second. This passage of Scripture confirms that very thing. Thousands of years later, we can read these indistinct names and know that they mattered to God. God keeps his word and he keeps his promises. God sees everyone and he sees everything. And God assigns specifically. Let that sink in. When you read through this passage and you say, you keep saying when you read through this passage and then you don't read through this passage, there's 70 verses, thank me later. But when you read through this passage, what you'll note is there's work that is done by priests and work that is done by Levites and work that is done by singers. And listen, singers normally don't do any work, but here they do work. Porters, porters in here is basically janitors, doorkeepers. Even the porters are working, temple servants, descendants of Solomon's servants, big jobs and little jobs, humble work is being done. Every single group had its work to do. Again, as I have referenced, we're not told anything about these people. Most of them, it's only a name and a town. But these were the carpenters, these were the shepherds, these were the farmers, these were the stone cutters, these were the laborers. These were ordinary rank and file everyday people who had taken on this extraordinary challenge of faith. Ordinary people. Rank and file people. People like you and I who undertook this very difficult task. I love how one wrote of this group. He said, these are people who are without any show-stopping ability. But they are people with life-altering availability. I don't know if you are here this morning and you would consider yourself to have show-stopping ability. How many of you would say, I have show-stopping ability? Maybe you're thinking, I don't know, but if you would have seen me at six o'clock this morning, it probably would have stopped the show. I'm glad you beautified yourself. Show-stopping ability is not something that most of us have in our hip pocket. But life-altering availability is all that God asks of us. He assigns individually He assigns intentionally. He assigns specifically. That's what we learn here. It still works that way in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's comparing the church to a body. And, And he's teaching us that every member in the body has a part that they must play if the body is ever gonna function as it should. 1 Corinthians 12, 20. But now are they many members, yet but one body? Many members, one body. All the members of the church have a gift. You, at salvation, are gifted a spiritual capacity, a spiritual ability. You have a gift that you must use to benefit the whole. Now, I understand not everybody feels like they have show-stopping ability. Some people feel feeble. Some others feel like their part is insignificant and maybe small, but grasp like these, you're precious to God. 
We may perceive that our work is unimportant, but I would tell you that's a fleshly trap that people can fall into because all work for God matters to God. The question is, are you doing your part? Now, the reality is, when you arrive here on a Sunday, there is an expectation that I would be ready to serve, and rightly so. I would appear to be apathetic and indifferent, outright lazy, if I had not applied myself to understand Ezra 2 to try to communicate some relevant principles in digestible fashion to you. But are you aware there is also pressure on you to use the gift that God has gifted you to serve? One said this, bad sermons in the pulpit and cobwebs in the pews are both a disgrace to the Lord. We all have some part to play in the life of the church. If I was unprepared, you would consider me indifferent. If I was unprepared, you would consider me apathetic. If I was unprepared, you would consider me lazy and failing in my God-given assignment. Why do we not see that of ourselves when we're merely here attending? You have a gift, and God has assigned you specifically to use that gift. Another wrote, even today, the church is advanced by the tiny pushes of ordinary people, common people who by faith in God do uncommon things for God. Even you, who feel like all it is is a word of encouragement who feel like all you may do is drop something in the offering box. All that we do for God matters to God. And no one is insignificant. In fact, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, ye see your calling, brethren. Here's the description of the church. Not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The weak things of the world, to confound the things which are mighty, nearly 50,000 ordinary people set out on this journey of faith that will take them through dangerous territory over four months of time to come back to a desolate city with broken down walls and no altar or temple, but, but they were there to work. Which teaches me this, even when you feel like you're in the place where you are beat down, even when you feel like you are somewhat useless or you feel like you're in a season of life where you're on the taking or the receiving end of ministry, what I would say is this, what you should do is something. By faith, something. One again said, faith is resting in the fact that God has a purpose in leaving me on planet earth. Even when I feel useless to him and a burden to others, by faith, Do something, little pushes by ordinary people, take care of the whole. It would do us well to ask what the Apostle Paul did after his conversion in Acts 22.10, giving his testimony, he said, as he was saved, what shall I do, Lord? Lord, what do you want me to do? What job do you have for me? What is my assignment? Now, I would not be a Baptist pastor if I did not point out. I would not be a pastor in a building campaign if I did not point out that one of the things they did here in Ezra chapter 2 is give generously. 
It's a fact that in verse 68 we read this, and some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. They gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work, three score and 1,000 drams of gold and 5,000 pounds of silver and 100 priest garments. The governor and the leaders and the tribal fathers gave and undoubtedly it was a thank offering to the Lord. They were giving of their time and their money before their houses were ever built. That's how much it mattered. They did not require a sermon series on stewardship. They were motivated by gratitude to God, grasping that they were a part of something special that God had gifted them to do. Do you understand? Some people are just gifted to give. That's how they can serve the whole. And that these gave after their ability. Some can give more than others, no doubt about it. The rich here give after their riches. The poor here give out of their poverty. In the New Testament, we read that the widow gave two mites, which was everything to her, and Jesus took note of it. Everybody can do something, little bits, little pushes. God keeps his word. He keeps his promises. God sees everyone and he sees everything. God assigns individually and he assigns intentionally and God has expectations for us. This is a little uncomfortable to consider that God, who knows our name, has expectations of us. That's a fact. We read in verses 59 to 63 in this lengthy chapter about some Jews who could not validate their lineage who could not validate their ancestry. About 652 of them could not do it. In fact, in verse 59, we read this. And these were they which went up from Telmela, Telharsa, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not show their father's house and their seed whether they were of Israel or not. Now, what we might think is, okay, you cannot prove that you are actually ancestral Israelites. You're booted out of here. You have to go back home. The reality is Zerubbabel and Jeshua, who are in charge, do not send them home, but according to Old Testament right, they allow them to live with them as strangers and foreigners. But... Some of those who could not produce their heritage or lineage were attempting to be priests. And I want you to note what happens to them in verse 62. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they as polluted put from the priesthood. So you have people who are here by faith, who have undertaken this journey, who want to be priests, and because they cannot prove their lineage, they're put out of the priesthood. That seems really narrow-minded. That seems really, really harsh. But here's the Old Testament law. This was to be a memorial unto the children of Israel, that no stranger, which is not of the seed of Aaron, come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he be not as Korah and as his company, as the Lord said to him by the hand of Moses. Here's what you need to understand. In the midst of all of this Old Testament ease, in the midst of all of this law, God has expectations. 
And he communicated his law to convey his holiness and to communicate a demand for adherence and obedience to it. And in the midst of all of this excitement, and in the midst of undertaking this difficult thing, there were some that could not be priests because they could not prove their lineage to Aaron, which says to us, God has expectations. God demands holiness. He demands adherence to his word. He expects that we will be separated from this world system that dominates us. That we would pursue holiness. Now sometimes when you talk about separation and holiness, we have people who have a history or a legacy of being a part of churches where it was just guilt-ridden. And, and it was all about external things. All of that bad does not negate the fact that God does mandate holiness. And what this teaches us is we should be cautious about the theology, and not just the theology, but even the individuals that are here to communicate the word. Those that are even allowed into the membership of the church, that we as individuals should live separated lives. You should not be like the world. You should be distinct. You should be set apart for God's use. Peter, who is writing to a group of scattered believers, says this in 1 Peter 4, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. What is that mind? For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. What he means is, if we're crucified in Christ, we're dead to sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past, this is over. This is what you used to be. May have sufficed us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles to live like the world, where we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Here's what Peter's saying. Once that was who you were, but now you are alive in Christ and dead to sin. So stop living like you're out there in the world. God has expectations for personal holiness from us. You cannot live like you are not his. You must live in the light of his word, and I get it. Sometimes we arrive at this point and people feel like you're saying that I've got to be a clean vessel for use. Man, I feel like a dirty glass. I feel like a dirty plate. Understand, the principle that is taught to us here is that though these individuals could not produce their lineage and were polluted and put from the priesthood, they were able to participate in Passover. They were believers, they were here and could live amongst and serve. Though they could not be priests, they could participate in Passover. No matter your lineage, no matter your past, if you placed your faith in Christ for salvation, you can share in the work with everyone else. God keeps his word, keeps his promises. He sees everyone and everything. He assigns individually and intentionally, and he expects holiness from us. And when all of that is done, God blesses. In the first verse of chapter three, we read, and when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. That again, 
points to 1 Corinthians 12, many members, one body. They all gather together as one. As we work through this, we'll note in Ezra chapter 3 that when the foundations of the temple are finally laid, the people sing, they worship. And I want you to derive one simple lesson from this. In the 137th Psalm, which we studied last week, we heard that the people would mourn together. How can we sing while Jerusalem lies in waste? How can we sing when we cannot worship God where he wanted us to worship him? How can we sing while we are in bondage in a strange land? And now by Ezra chapter 3, we hear them singing. They're singing now, which indicates that God is blessing God is coming through. Now, mind you, if you arrived at Jerusalem, you would not have seen at this moment what once was. You would not see a walled city and a beautiful temple. You would not see a marketplace and inhabitants moving in and out. It was meager. It was small. It was really something that was just round one. And the people are praising and they are singing because God blesses whenever people step out by faith to do the difficult things. God keeps his word and his promises. Same for you and me. He sees everyone and everything. He assigns individually and intentionally. He expects holiness and obedience, and he always blesses people that live this out. Here, Ezra is just helping us learn an Old Testament story, an ancient story that might seem on the surface like it lacks relevance for us, but we learn a lot about God in it. Would you for just a moment please bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.